0: HVAC 360 is brought to you today by the Cooling Tower Shower. Feeling grimy and disgusting at the end of a long day in the field? Well, grab your rubber ducky and your soap on the rope for our new shower accessory specifically designed for cooling towers. Simply extend and connect the piping, shut down that fan for safety, and let that anti-biological cooling tower water wash away your dirt. You can even turn the fan back on and use it as a big blow dryer. Never dirty the inside of your car again with the cooling tower shower today. <laughs> hey, welcome back. Mendelson here, your host for HVAC 360, helping you be the best, and the brightest in the field of HVAC. Each week, we're either sharing information and lesson learned from the field or talking with industry experts. Uh, But I don't stop there. I want to encourage you and everyone to come join the growing community of people just like you over at HVAC360.com and signing up for my newsletter. All right, so what's up for this week? This week, we're going to be talking with uh, Jim Thornton, who is the uh, National Technical Leader of commissioning over at Henderson Building Solutions. Now we're going to be talking about a uh, a hospital that's in the Mojave Desert. Uh, it's a uh, actually an Army hospital. So it's it was one of those things I saw a net zero and I just had to get Jim on here to talk about what what's really involved in commissioning a net zero hospital. You know, so I uh, I won't. It's a, it's the, probably about an hour long. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna uh, uh, belabor this too much. Uh, but just cut to the, uh, or uh, make sure that you stick around until the very end, because there's some good nuggets there, uh, right there at the end there. So, all right, uh, without further ado, let's go cut to the tape with Jim Thornton. All right, today we're talking with Jim Thornton, who is the National Technical Leader of Commissioning for Henderson Building Solutions. How you doing today, Jim?
1: I'm doing fine, Matt. Yourself?
0: Good. Hey, um, we're going to be talking. We're going to have a conversation today about an article that you co-wrote that was in the the ASHI, the American Society of uh, Healthcare Engineers, um, their publication. So this was a uh, centered on a um, over at Fort Irwin, which is in the Mojave Desert, the uh, the Weed Army Community Hospital, which is really more of a, a medical center from from what you're explaining to me. Um, So we're going to be talking about that. But first, I think I uh, give the audience a little bit of a taste to your commissioning background.
1: So I started doing commissioning full time in early 2008. um, But I was doing commissioning in one form or another back in the early 90s. um, During my time in hospital operations uh, with Texas Children's Hospital. Um, you know, testing, uh, a lot of different types of testing, um, and found I had a knack for it. Anyway, I, I, um, made a plan to go into commissioning, uh, that I made in 2000, um, 99, 2000, I went through a number of steps to create an entry point into, uh, Doing commissioning full time. I started in 2008 with a small firm in Houston. Um, I did a lot of K12, uh, some GSA work. Um, didn't really do much healthcare, though I had done it previously. Uh, in 2012, I started working the uh, the New Orleans um, their New University Medical Center. I spent not quite three years uh commissioning that hospital um that was uh, 1.7 million square feet i think the budget the program budget on the hospital was 1.2 billion that was a uh a pro- kind of a project of a lifetime um and it was total building commissioning uh, much like the fort Orwin hospital is
0: So now the one thing that really caught my eye when I read this article was that obviously net zero, net zero for a hospital. I mean, hospitals have been notorious for being just energy pigs as far as, um, you know, the usage of it. Why? You know, because and, and, you know, for fair enough reason, because obviously the the main goal of the hospital, um, you know, its purpose is patient care. It's not necessarily, it doesn't care about saving energy for the most part. So when I saw this net zero, I'm like, you know, why net zero for this project? What 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 can you tell us about what you know about um, why they went after net zero for a uh, one? run?
1: Um, there's uh, many reasons, and I, I don't want to try to, uh, to second guess the Corps of Engineers on this, but um, at some point, the Fort Irwin hospital became a, uh, a project of primary importance for the Corps of Engineers, um, because of its remote location, because of the basis, uh, primary importance to the U S army as a, uh, as a training base for mobile warfare. Um, they had in years past, um, had in years past transferred um, their critical patients to hospitals um, you know as much as 120 miles away the um, uh, medevac you know helicopter service because the hospital on the base was not capable of handling trauma care uh, to the extent that they had need need for it so from a net zero perspective, um, they were wanting to um, apply their design excellence. um, What's the word I'm looking for? Their design excellence standards, um, not just to the patient care aspect of the design, but also to as much as they could to the energy efficiency aspect of the design. Um, I think this net zero in part came about because of where the place is located at um, the need for uh, resiliency in its operations because of its remoteness um, and the fact that the, uh, it was an ideal location for a large photovoltaic uh, solar array uh, to provide uh, the hospital with almost all of its energy needs. So it, it's kind of a combination of factors, if you will, that, uh, that brought them there. I don't think that it was that they initially set out to do net zero.
0: So you know obviously with the uh, the, the net zero that you're, t- you're talking about they have the advantage of being you know in in a desert lots of plenty of sun that goes around and uh you know but even still you know if you if you took out the array this hospital probably performed pretty well um you know uh, at least you know near net zero kind of um I don't know what. Did you know what the uh, the EUI? I mean, from some of the merit measurement and verification standards, where they were where they were hitting as far as building energy, what they were targeting. Yeah. I
1: don't recall the specific EUI that they were targeting. Um, from a standpoint of the mechanical systems, uh, the design really did not do anything um, terribly unique or unusual. Um, what was done that reduced the, uh, the mechanical loading uh, were some of the more obvious things that you would do with the building envelope. Um, the way the building was sited, uh, the way that they did their shading of their, uh, of their fenestration, uh, the, the use of a, a very reflective roof. Um, the insulation, uh, which they mentioned in the article, uh, was quite a bit greater than the, uh, the standard code requirement. Um, they made note that it didn't uh, make sense from a standpoint of lifecycle cost uh, as they are normally applied, but considering the age of the facility and its location, they felt like uh, investing in additional insulation was worth uh, worth the effort. So they significantly reduced the solar loading uh, on the space, even though. They have a fairly significant amount of uh, of glass, you know, window to wall ratio, uh, particularly in the atrium. Um, but the way that they shaded it, the way that they sited the building uh, to reduce the uh, the west exposure, uh, all of those things kind of played into making the HVAC portion of the energy load of the facility uh, smaller than it normally would be. So. In estimating the percentage of uh, demand that the mechanical systems placed um, on the uh, on the electrical and and uh, and other fuel usage, um, probably twenty five to thirty percent um, is my estimate. Um, you know, hospitals tend to be uh, very, Plug load oriented, you know, all the heavy equipment that they use in medical imaging, for instance, uses a considerable amount of power. And in decades past, uh, that was just considered a cost of doing business. And um, as you may have noticed with ASHRAE 90.1, they've been addressing plug loads more and more as we get, you know, Farther down the road toward 2030.
0: Um, you know, so- and, I, I, and I think I'm just going to interject here a little bit. I think mm-hmm. just to give just to give the audience understanding, this is not this is not just a small building that they made net zero. This is actually a fully functional uh, hospital. I mean, you know, it really compares to anything that you'd see out there Um in, you know, any of these standard community hospitals. They have the, all the, the imaging suites. They have everything from soup to nuts to take care of, uh, you know, the soldiers out there, correct?
1: That's correct. So this is a uh, this hospital, if I understood uh, correctly, is a trauma one um, center, meaning that it's capable of handling any type of uh, traumatic injury that can come through their doors. Um, Being that they are a a training facility, um, and moreover, a training facility that uses live fire, including uh, uh, cannon, um, you know, people get hurt, and sometimes really badly. And they needed something there to... uh, to increase the survivability of their patients, you know what they had before wasn't enough. So this hospital is—they've done really two things. It, this is a hospital, but it is also a uh, a very nice clinical care facility for the base. So it's more of a medical center rather than just a hospital. The hospital itself. Takes up about a third of the campus. The clinical care facilities take up the balance, uh, accepting the uh, accepting the cup. Um.
0: Now, how does how does your mindset when you when you think about a um, you know I've, I've never commissioned a net zero building. What 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 sort of things go through your mind when you think of a net zero building like? hey, I'm going to have to get more information on this or, or what, you know, I'm specifically uh, have to find more information about these systems. So what what is your kind of process about, you know, the mindset of net zero?
1: This is the, uh, the second facility that I've done that was net zero um, design. The first one was Golden One Center in Sacramento, which ran kind of concurrently. With this one, um, but completed before this one did. Um, the main thing about net zero, from a commissioning standpoint, is um, are the assumptions in the energy model uh, reasonably accurate? In other words, are you know are we looking at something that has pie in the sky assumptions about how the building's going to do, or does it really reflect uh, what how a normal building will will be used? Um, so that was in our mind uh, to a degree um, from a standpoint of the commissioning perspective. You know, we wanted to get a sense of uh, of how they approach the energy model. Um, this project has measurement and verification on it. In fact, we're still doing or the uh, the folks that I was working with at AECOM are doing uh, measurement and verification work still on the facility. Um, there is uh, submetering of the facility to allow um, kind of a focus approach on where the energy usage is occurring and... Uh, trying to break out the different pieces to determine, you know, where we're using the energy. Is it within the norms that were uh, identified in the energy model? Um, And if not, why not?
0: Now, you you mentioned the energy model. I got to ask, was this something that was done in-house by the engineers or did they have a third-party consultant doing this?
1: They had a third-party consultant. Um, I'm afraid I don't remember the consultant's name and I really feel, kind of feel bad about that. But I, um, when we looked at the energy model against the, uh, the measurement and verification, uh, aspects, we wanted to do a, uh, a calibrated model. To comply with the measurement and verification option that was chosen, and uh, one of the things that we ran into was um, a reluctance by the third-party consultant to provide information related to their assumptions, um, which made things difficult to, uh, you know, to, to develop a calibrated model. But for you. Group is still involved in developing that model and has uh, found a means to to work around that limitation.
0: Right. So, I mean, obviously, with if you if people aren't familiar with calibrated models, you have the the basic assumption of the design. So you know what the the usage is going to be. You know when people are going to be there, the occupancy. You. I understand the typical loads and loading, but that doesn't necessarily have to match with reality. So it's important to calibrate the model or, uh, make sure and verify all these assumptions. So that's where you're, you're, you're wanting that information from the energy modeling consultant, but you're not getting it.
1: No, we, um, you know, we asked for a, uh, a copy of the model. Um, energy models are developed through the use of different software and um aecom retains the ability to use uh and the the skill sets to use um most of them so the uh, consultant that provided the model uh would not provide us with a copy of the model um, so we had to build a model from scratch using the uh you know, the contract documents right. and we're using data from the, the electrical sub metering, the gas metering. Uh, we're using data from the building automation system from a standpoint of uh, temperatures and um, the operational aspects of the chilled water and hot water plant. Uh, the scheduling aspects of the, uh, the clinical you know, the clinical space, uh, the hospital itself is a 24-7 operation, but the clinical space, they keep more normal business hours. Um, so the, the purpose of going through the measurement and verification is to confirm that, a hey, is this thing doing uh, net zero energy or is it not? So we're looking at the production of the photovoltaic array it feeds into the uh into the power monitoring control system along with the energy demand side of it um and it's uh it's kind of a challenge uh, going through it to the extent that we we've, we've gone through it thus far and uh we'll continue to go through it the remainder of this year
0: so, you, do you have um, any any sense on whether or not uh, um, it's going well, or it's or it might be a little bit off?
1: They have had uh, problems with um, some aspects of their operation, uh, primarily related to water quality, mm-hmm. that have affected the mechanical operation of the facility. Um, they address them as they've come up um but um there were certain assumptions that were made late in the design period that um took the um the reverse osmosis system that they had designed for the facility out of the design because of um a concurrent um Water treatment project at the base's water treatment uh, center so concurrent to the hospital project the base upgraded their uh, potable water system and uh, the expectation was that the water coming from the potable water system uh, would would uh, essentially do away with the need for most of the reverse osmosis Uh, so they deleted it from the scope, even though it was originally in the design. What we found when, uh, when the building started operating is that uh, the potable uh, water treatment plant was not hitting their, uh, their conductivity targets. And uh, so the hardness of the water was more of an issue. Uh, this created issues for both the uh, mechanical system as far as the conventional water treatment um, it also affected the, uh, the humidification. Uh, they have uh, spot um, steam humidifiers that serve the humidifiers for the various air handling units and some of the zones that uh, serve the, the operating rooms. Um, so they've, they've gone back in and they've added some additional uh, reverse osmosis capacity to the facility, um, but it had an effect in how the facility was operating on the mechanical side. And so their energy density ended up being a little higher than what they expected it to be for the first year.
0: So I know that uh, in, in taking a look at the article, um, you know, just just kind of briefly, I know you weren't involved in the design, but as far as the article states, um, they said the design was completed in forty percent of the usual time, which was one of the things that stood out to me when I was reading through it. And I know that uh, um, the, the, one, the one thing that the one thing a reader should know is that the uh, the uh, AE firm RLF um, has done a bit of work with the DoD before, so um, they kind of know exactly what, what they up. want. <laughs> so shaving yep. off forty percent of the design time may not be as dramatic as 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 they uh, kind of originally stated um and another thing you you had mentioned that you know we're not looking at uh you know really creative MEP systems they're pretty much pretty much standard you you know the article lists what you what you have there you're just basically condensing boilers and maybe a low uh condenser you know a low uh, um a low water return temperature um but you know, it's correct. pretty much just standard, and you'd pointed out the uh, the envelope, which is which is really the um, you know the highlight of what makes the energy reduction possible for this facility.
1: From the standpoint of the solar loading, that's correct. Okay. So, um, what uh, what the audience needs to remember is that uh, a couple of things. This is a a base that is very remote from uh, the n- nearest urban area, which is LA. Uh, they're about two hours from Ontario. Anybody knows where that's at? Um,
0: Ontario, California, just state that That's that.
1: correct. Ontario, California. Uh, they're about three hours from Las Vegas. Um, so, being able to staff a hospital with qualified operation staff um, in a location like that and, um, you know, working in the desert, um, you know, it's just challenging. So they chose to go with systems that, uh, you know, weren't particularly challenging from an operational standpoint. Um, People, the, I guess the, the, capacity of the local trade community to provide uh, qualified staff for a facility that is using chilled water and uh, you know gas-fired hot water systems, both uh, domestic and heating hot water, was of more importance than was. Uh, using something unique that, uh, you know, might have issues with reliability. So they, they chose to, I guess, get themselves to the net zero by approaching it from a standpoint of the production side, using photovoltaic energy for the electrical demand. The, uh, the photovoltaic system on site is, I believe, at 2.2 or 2.4. Um, megawatt facility. Um, the, um, and then the domestic hot water system is using a vacuum tube solar domestic hot water system, um, which is mounted on the roof. Um, and, uh, it provides, uh, roughly including the storage, it provides about three days of heating. Um, so if, if even if they go, Through uh, an extended period of cloudy weather, um, the domestic hot water storage gives them about three days before they have to start firing the domestic hot water boilers. Um, That said, the uh, domestic hot water solar system is backed up by a propane-fired domestic hot water boiler uh, system. So. I guess what I'm saying is is that the Army took the approach that uh, they needed a facility that they could maintain, um, but they wanted to make it as independent from outside utility requirements as they could. Um, some of this had to do with the desire to hit net zero, but some of it also had to do with uh, resiliency. You know, can this facility operate without a connection to the utility, um, for an extended period of time, you know, due to a natural disaster, like a massive earthquake or some type of man-made disaster. And I think they succeeded. Um, it was a, a balancing act from a standpoint of the design between, uh, trying to achieve something unique and, uh, achieving something that was, uh, operationally maintainable.
0: So now you, yourself doing the commissioning, um, it, it states in the, in the article that there is a six to seven month functional testing period. Can you now, can you describe for people what's involved in a, uh, a functional testing period for, for that amount of time?
1: Um, because we were dealing with, uh, you know, a total building commissioning approach, um, in the way that the project stages, you know, how it comes together, how it's constructed, how the work sequences, the functional testing period is probably a little longer than, uh, than what you would find with a typical lead commissioning project, um, even one of any real size. So in this instance, uh, we started testing different aspects of the electrical system, uh, actually, back in the fourth quarter of 2016, um, with uh, the um, the NETA testing agency coming out and testing the electrical switchgear, uh, we moved into the testing of the um, of the diesel generator plant, uh, which was, I think, um, um, trying to remember three. 4.5 megawatts, I think, total. Um, and a megawatt and a half of that was redundant. So the, the generator plant is uh, was tested uh, several times over that six-month period. Um, some of it was the testing of the generators themselves. Some of it was the testing of the paralleling gear. We did three test of the uh, of the emergency power system um, from a standpoint of uh, validating all of the control sequences uh, in the SCADA control package uh, through all the different failure scenarios. Um, and we did it that way to uh, basically to confirm that we had achieved repeatability of function. So <clears throat> that aspect of the of the functional testing period alone uh stretched the uh the testing period out uh, probably two or three months beyond what uh what it would normally be should it be like a lead version three project where you're dealing with mechanical and lighting controls and some plumbing um so the electrical testing was somewhat unique uh was very extensive Uh, we did do as it mentions in the article um a, uh, an integrated systems test uh, that uh, involved disconnecting the, the site uh, electrical utility from the site and um, seeing the system, all the different systems come up and respond. Um, and we did find some problems, you know. Um, there were a number of uh, building and automation system microprocessors that did not have... Um, Um, EPS power to them, and uh, when they went offline, they went offline because they weren't powered uh, up until the emergency power system came up. Um, It took probably a greater period of time for the building automation system to restore itself than it it should have, Uh, so that's one of the things that was identified that, uh, that they needed to address. We also found some issues with the fire alarm system that we addressed during that time. So from a standpoint of the mechanical systems testing, um, that was more straightforward. We started at component level. Um, we did system level testing, both air side and water side. And then uh, we did interoperability testing, um, you know particularly between the electrical systems, mechanical systems, as far as how they responded when the normal power uh, came off, but also the fire alarm and the, uh, and the security systems, how they responded when there were power outages as well as in normal conditions. Um, security systems in particular, because of the nature of the facility, uh, went through extensive testing. You know, because there were, um, part of the security system limited egress, uh, deliberately, uh, the infant protection system, for instance, uh, is designed to limit egress so that somebody cannot leave the hospital, um, you know, kidnapping a baby. Um, but there has to be a means to get out of the hospital. If, if your firearm system goes off and, uh, And there's a a method to test the security system to confirm that all paths of egress, um, you know, open when the fire alarm system in a given zone went off.
0: So now, um, obviously, one thing I want to point out to people is if you don't understand, um, you made a kind of a a good point um, and something that happens a lot, especially with the building automation system and emergency power. Uh, emergency power is something that it's not instantaneous, so there is kind of a, a kind of a blip in the you know power supply, and anything that has you know a microprocessor with uh, you know a, a, like a, a computer in it um, doesn't handle blips well, and that's why you kind of want to have them on UPS systems, even if it's a small local UPS, just to be able to handle that blip so they don't go down and have to reboot, um, because like you mentioned. Uh, A hundred things can you know, a different hundred different things could go wrong when something has to actually reboot, as opposed to just you know maintaining power.
1: That's correct. So actually, I like to see a complete disconnect of power for at least a minute, um, from a standpoint of building automation system, um, because it allows the capacitors within the microprocessor to power down and to uh, to restart. Um, you know, in a more ideal condition. Um, When you don't have that, particularly when you're dealing with a microsecond blip, um, which this hospital does experience, you know, the the electrical utility provided this hospital is um, roughly 40 miles away from Ah uh, the point where it comes off of the uh, the primary high power distribution. Um, you know it's it's uh, one feed coming into the base and then it splits and feeds a multi you know multiple substations. this a hospital is fed by two different substations, but coming into the base itself, there's one feed. and um, because of the distance and the climatic conditions, um, you know, Electrical blips are not uncommon and micro what I call microsecond blips, where you go you lose power really very momentarily, less than a second, sometimes maybe two or three seconds. Um, and then it reestablishes itself. It's not long enough to bring on the emergency power system, but it is long enough to create havoc with your microprocessors. And, uh, so. When you have a condition where you have not really done anything to establish power security, you know, from a standpoint of your utility, um, you really need to look at the, the low voltage systems that you're relying on and determine what parts of them need to be circuited through some type of UPS system, um, you know, uninterruptible power. Um, because what can happen is, is you can go all offline momentarily, the thing come back up and it scrambles the, uh, the code that the, uh, that the microprocessor is operating under, um, in the, uh, in the resident memory. Um, and the only way to correct it is to cycle the power and let the capacitors bleed down before you start back. Um, you know, to get a, to get a clean start. Um, and you can see some rather strange things with, uh, with the microprocessors when it goes through a really momentary type blip. Um, you know, some of the operations people that may be listening to this have seen this kind of thing occur probably more than people that are on the construction side
0: of the business. Absolutely. So now uh, over the the course of the commissioning, what was some of the other things that you found um, that were wrong that might have been included in, say, you know, lessons learned? um, Um,
1: Yeah. So one of the things that was of, uh, really took some time to resolve uh, had to do with the fuel system supporting the emergency power generators. Um, The, uh, the fuel system used a combination of underground tanks and uh, day tanks that were mounted separately from the generators, but in the generator room, the day tanks held roughly 500 gallons, uh, and were really intermediate storage. So as the day tank would draw down the pumps on the main tanks would start fill the day tank, isolate, you know, back and forth. Um, Depending on how long the generator would run uh, i've commissioned a few of these um, normally i see a, uh, a a small pump a fuel pump uh, between the day tank and the uh and the generator to provide a a positive head uh going into the generator's fuel system in this case they were relying on the uh On the suction capacity of the generator's fuel pump to draw fuel from the day tank um the way that the day tank was configured the pickup tube was placed uh in the tank in a location that created a venturi uh, in the uh in the tank it's just the geometry of it so what was happening was is we would get this venturi Created that was drawing air into the pickup tube, and we would we would lose our prime. Um, so that was a really unique problem. I've never dealt with something like that in the past, uh, at least in that kind of you know that that kind of situation. Um, and it took us several weeks between the engineers uh and the, you know and the people working at the site i had involvement in testing different aspects of the piping system uh to determine if we had uh you know suction side leakage in the piping which is kind of a, an unusual thing to test for uh normally when you're testing fuel oil piping you test under positive pressure but because this uh this system was relying on negative suction pressure uh, between the the um, between the day tank and the generator. Uh, we had to test under a, under a vacuum state um, to determine if the if the piping actually was airtight in uh, in a negative condition.
0: Yeah, um, if, if people aren't understanding the the Venturi effect. Is that uh, you can imagine it's kind of like a uh, like a uh, like a bathtub drain. So you have the the water swirling and you have the the air kind of in the middle of it. And what ha- ends up happening is is when you're when you're drawing from a condition like that, you can actually get the you know the air all the way into it. Just kind of siphons all the way into the uh, intake. And obviously, um, you know you're you're uh, adding air into the system, which is uh, not what you want.
1: No. Uh, it'll not generator right offline. So just to be clear, these day tanks were vented, so um, you know they weren't pressurized. Um, and we ended up finding a uh, a location to mount the pickup tube and we extended the uh, the length of the pickup tube so that we were about a half an inch roughly off the bottom of the tank and between the the location of the pickup tube from, a from, a I uh, I guess a geometry consideration and the distance of the pickup tube from the bottom of the tank, we were able to disrupt the Venturi, um, to the point where we were able to, uh, to draw a solid column of fluid. Um, and we didn't have to go in and add a, uh, you know, a pumping system, which was a good thing. Uh, And they've not had any issues um, with this fuel system uh, related to the, you know, to the fuel pickup uh, since they, they occupied, I guess in October of, no, it was September of 17. I think it was. So anyway, um, that was probably the, the most unique of the issues that we found. Uh, one of the more troublesome issues because um, is it was unexpected by everybody including the manufacturer of the day tank um, what else did we see that was uh, it was unusual out there um, the domestic hot water system uh, used vacuum tube collectors and um, these things are made out of glass the the tube that the water flows through is, um, the tube that the water flows through is copper, but there is a, a glass tube that, uh, that surrounds it uh, that is held under a vacuum. And um, there's not any kind of, separate vacuum system to maintain that vacuum it's it's basically hermetic so what we found was because of uh the extreme temperature changes that the system would see uh you know in in any given day during the summer it goes from about uh i think overnight they get down into low 80s and then it gets up to 115 120 degrees so there's a fair amount of expansion and contraction that takes place over a given day during the summer on the system and uh what we found was is that if if the geometry of the tubes uh in their placement in the in the manifolds was not exactly as it needed to be it would crack the tube and they would lose the vacuum um, and it was very obvious when it happened. Um, so it, it's become something that they have to keep an eye on, um, probably more often than, than I think they had planned. Uh, so periodically they do have to change tubes.
0: Is that, is that something that's, I mean, it, to me, it doesn't seem, um, like that's something that's very easy to do. Is it, is it, um,
1: it's fairly straightforward to change the tubes out, Okay. The concern that I had with it is, you know, with all the focus on the resiliency uh, in the building design, the mechanical system design, the electrical system design, I just found the use of vacuum tube technology to be unique, you know, in that it's knowing, you know, what we know about vacuum systems uh in general how difficult it is to maintain a vacuum um i think I, if if i was to suggest to a design team uh an alternate means of doing domestic hot water uh, production i would suggest something other than a vacuum tube system um you know there's thermosiphon. There are open-loop systems. There's closed-loop systems uh, that tend to be more robust in design. And uh, the difference is the vacuum tube system uh, provided them with a higher level of uh, thermal transfer efficiency. Um, you know, And that's, I think, part of the reason why they went with it. But from a standpoint of resiliency, I probably would have selected something a little bit more robust.
0: Right. Because even though you can have these tubes, I'm, I'm guessing on, uh, you know, just a stock item, um, to be able to get more, it probably would be a, you know, a lengthy process. You know, you're probably
1: weeks in this particular instance, the manufacturer was, uh, was based in England. And, uh, you know, I don't know if many of the listeners have dealt with getting parts from Europe, but, uh, You're not talking about something that you overnight um you're usually talking several weeks in production um, and uh and then of course transit uh usually by ship so they have to have an inventory on site uh, and when it drops to a certain level they have to buy some more um the other thing that concerns me about a system like this is the company that manufactured the system relatively speaking, is fairly small. And if at some point, uh, you know, they they either get bought up or they go out of business or they, they have some kind of planned obsolescence for their collectors, you know, at what point are you going to find yourself with a system you can't use? You know, but still within the lifetime or the life cycle of that system uh, because you can't get vacuum tubes. So I I liked the system from a standpoint of its technology uh, because it was very thermally efficient. Um, but from a perspective of resiliency and from a perspective of reliable service long term through the expected life cycle of that of that plant, I I didn't care for
0: it. So now, um, obviously, we talk about a little bit about the the, the maintenance staff, and when you go through a, a training for a net zero facility, what what sort of special considerations do you have to have um, when going through that process?
1: So, um, I try to make it a practice that all the uh, all the training is uh, is video taped. You know that some a videographer is present. Has set up the equipment. There's, uh, he's using special equipment when he's testing, or rather, when he's uh, when there's training going on in front of loud equipment, so that uh, you know the audio is not just overwhelmed by the mechanical noise. Um, from a standpoint of a new net zero facility. Um, you know, there, there has to be more of a focus on the submetering aspect of it and uh, making sure that your power monitoring control system is working correctly, that your building automation system is trending correctly. So there's training aspects related to using those systems, uh, you know, from an operations standpoint that are probably a little bit more unique than the typical training sessions that you find on a hospital facility um the um the need for an inventory um a local inventory because of the facility's remoteness uh rather than you know uh, ordering something when it fails uh something that you know is a consumable right um belts you know, filters, what have you. Um, Talking about those during training, uh, making sure that they understand that they need to maintain an inventory, they need to provide space for it, uh, and they need to do it in a way that it's not going to compromise the the fire alarm system or the fire egress system. Um, You know, those are all considerations related to the training. Um, One thing that I do want to mention, and this is a problem that I find in almost every uh, commissioning project that I've ever worked is that uh, most of the people that are going to be operating the building are fully employed and are, you know, if not fully utilized in their current activities, nearly so. So it's very difficult to uh, find a way to get the people into the classes and, uh, you know, i able to sit through the training on this facility went for weeks, you know, all the different training that they did. It wasn't just the MEP systems that they had to train on. They had other things that they had to maintain in the facility. So the training went on for weeks and weeks. And, um, frankly, I don't know how you do that with a training organization that uh, has people that are already committed full time to other jobs. You know, in this case, people that were working at the, at the existing base hospital, they had work to do to keep that hospital running. And they also had work in other locations on the base. So it was, it was difficult to, uh, get them there on every training session. Sometimes they made them and sometimes they didn't. Um, So be certain to provide uh, a means to properly, I'm gonna use an old term, videotape uh, your training session. Uh, Preferably use the services of a videographer because you're gonna need those recordings. These guys are going to have to go through training sessions that they missed. They're going to have to go through training sessions that uh, they've been through before. But, you know, unless you're using that information on a daily basis, you're going to lose that information. Um, so, having the ability to uh, have a structured training program that basically goes through you know, some retraining aspects of the staff should be part of any new facility. You know, how are you going to continue training your staff? How are you going to deal with the turnover that is inevitable as people move through their careers? You know, you need a means to continue uh, the training of your staff so that uh, they know how the building is supposed to operate. There is some some institutional memory, if you will. Um, and, uh, you know, <laughs> the alternative is is that you, you have staff changes that uh, don't go through the training they need. They operate the building the way they think it's supposed to be operated, and quite often it's not operated correctly. And you have failures that are unexpected and very unpleasant to deal with. Absolutely.
0: Uh, Absolutely. You know, I I think one thing that I'll I'll add in there with the training, um, you said uh, independent third-party videographer. I would, you know, I would ask at least for some sample of of training they've done before. Um, Yes. Because, you know, dealing with a loud environment is, is completely different than, you know, just shooting any sort of video. So That's correct. If they've done if they've done other you know uh, training sessions before, um, get a sample and uh, make sure that it, the audio quality is up to uh, um, up to snuff.
1: That's correct. I um, it is one of the things that I I have dealt with in the past when a videographer was not specified, and um, you know we relied on the construction manager. To, uh, to provide the video recording, they'd set up a camcorder like you'd use to take your family to Disneyland. Um, you know, with a an omnidirectional mic mounted on the camcorder. Uh, the trainer is standing next to the equipment. the the uh, The camera is probably twelve to fourteen feet away, and the, all you hear is the noise. You know, what good is that? Um, so. I realize that it's an expense uh, that a lot of people really don't want to make. They've they've got other things that they're committing their resources to, their financial resources to. But you're going to live with that building for 50 years. If you're living with a building for 50 years and you want it to be reliable in operation, your operation staff has to be trained properly and there has to be a means to do retraining and if you're going cheap on the use of your the recording of your training sessions by using a little sony cam you're going to pay for that over and over and not in a way that you want to
0: right you know, I mean, for, for for anybody in that particular case, um, if it's uh, relied on the CM or the GC or whoever's doing the recording, it, to them it's a checkbox. They don't care about the quality of the output. It's just that it's been done and it's, right. you know, they've fulfilled their contractual obligations, you know, yeah. simply put. Hey, um, I want to wrap this up here, uh, Jim. And uh, so any final thoughts as far as, you know, commissioning at Zero Hospital? I mean, what... What do, you, what do you want to leave people with?
1: Um, if I was to go back and do this one again, I would uh, I would focus a great deal more on system integration uh, during design phase, uh, particularly the uh, the coordination between specifications of the systems that have to integrate with one another uh i would spend a great deal more time and effort in uh in that aspect of it um the uh there are multiple systems in this hospital that rely on one another and uh we had to work through issues related to their integration that uh probably would have worked you know been worked through a lot easier had they been addressed in design phase so Um, this is a wonderful hospital it has a, a great deal of wonderful features to it um and it's going to provide the fort with um you know great medical care for decades um but things would have gone i think easier and um the operational aspects of the facility would have been easier to complete um, had there been more of an effort placed in uh, properly defining the integration requirements of the different systems that have interoperability needs.
0: All right. Well, that's absolutely great. Um, Jim, I appreciate your time and talking with us. And, uh, you know, if uh, anybody wants to read the article, I will link that up in the show notes um so it's the health facility management magazine and I'll uh, I'll definitely do that. So I appreciate it Jim. Thanks for having thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: All right, thanks again to uh, Jim Thornton for taking the time to chat with us. Check out the show notes for uh, the link to the article and some of the other things um, that we mentioned in the interview. So you can uh, find the show notes over at HVAC360.com slash 136 for episode 136. All right, um, that's it for this week. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. hope this was helpful. Uh, As if you know somebody who's looking to get more education Uh, on this or is interested in net zero interested in hospitals interested in commissioning why don't you go ahead and share this episode with them that's one of the things that you can do to help the show out two other things you can do is go and subscribe if you haven't already uh, over at hvac360.com you can i'd be greatly honored if you'd go over to uh, apple podcast and leave me a rating review there. And lastly, we are also um, putting the show on YouTube. So if you go, even though if you, even if you listen to this on your podcast player um, and don't listen to it on YouTube, go ahead and, and subscribe over there. That's going to allow me to reach more people and to do some fun things in the future if I get enough subscribers there. All right. Um, that's it. That's a wrap for this week of This episode of HVAC 360. I'm Matt Nelson, helping you be the best and the brightest in the field of HVAC. And as always, know what you build and share what you know.